Hey y'all, it's your girl Sikki. Thank you for tuning in to Sikki's Honeydew Project. I'm hoping that you're doing something sweet for yourself and others by checking out that honeydew list. I had the opportunity to speak with Indigo. Please check out her bio and look at her GoFundMe. She wants to connect students with an amazing, amazing adventure backpacking, creative writing, and just looking at life from a different perspective. I hope that you enjoyed the episode like I did. I hope that you participate in backpacking like I'm going to do. Thank you for tuning in and be good to yourselves. We are on Sookie's Honeydew Project and we're doing a little something sweet for ourselves by talking to Indigo today. And Indigo has an amazing background that I am so excited to share with everyone tonight. And um, I guess we can go ahead and get started. Indigo, do you mind just giving a little brief summary about your background and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's such a delight to be on the podcast. Really, thank you for having me and um making space for me to tell you a little bit about my background. I am a full-time community college writing professor at Northern Virginia Community College, and I'm also finishing my dissertation, my PhD at George Mason in writing and rhetoric. And then, so I am I am a writer, I'm a multi-genre writer. I do poetry and fiction and nonfiction. Uh, and then in addition to all the writing um, and just, <laughs> dissertating I am a backpacker and so I take to the woods a lot for hiking trips and backpacking trips okay and so I really want to get into that because you want to open that world to a a different world that maybe was not exposed or has not been exposed and so but um let's let's talk about how you got into it so was there a moment in your life where you're like I need some clarity it's not yoga I do not want to do bar. Like, I don't want that. Like, <laughs> like yeah. what uh, else is there for me to do? So I started backpacking. I'm 41. I started backpacking when I was 30. I'd done some hiking and camping before that, but I was not an athlete when I grew up. And I remember distinctly going on, I think, my first hiking trip when I was in high school. And we're planning it and the groups they're like should we do six miles eight miles ten miles and i said oh ten miles sure that sounds great no problem oh. and then we started out oh no on its own. it was just a hiking trip because people were meeting us at the other end with our with all of our gear and food and all sorts of things and so i don't know two miles in i thought what have i gotten myself into this is awful like this is so hard i don't know i was just like slow and exhausted and our leader, he said, he's trying to be so nice, you know, like make you feel good. He's like, it's all right, Indigo, you know, you're the only one who doesn't do a fall sport. And like, Tim, I don't do any sports. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> so wait, this is a sport? I thought we were hiking. Like we're going to yeah. look at some birds, maybe check yeah. out some flowers, sit down. Like Exactly. Like I didn't realize it was so hard. And um, <laughs> so... So somehow we, I made it through. I was like, okay, well, there's only one way out and it's at the end of the trail. So we made it through and, um, and I was like, okay, well, I never need to do this again. And uh, then when I went to college, I went on this really like crazy midnight hike in, uh, no, this is after college. This was in Guatemala. So when I lived in Guatemala, this like crazy hike and I was like, oh my goodness, this is exhausting what am I doing why have I got myself into this but somehow I after all of this I started doing I moved to Colorado and I lived with my mom's best friend for a few months and I started doing 14ers in Colorado which are 14,000 foot mountains um that you hike and wait 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 wait. what do you mean like you just I'm so wait (laughs) so you're just like I started doing like (laughs) so is there a sign up sheet for like a a 2001 and then you go to the 14 or like yeah no so you just no. go so no. there's a lot yeah there's a lot of you know Colorado Denver's a mile high city and so and I, I don't know miles what six or seven thousand my uh, feet and so there's a lot of 14,000 foot peaks in color in Colorado it's called a 14er 
And so um, there are some that are, you know, pretty easy. You can drive almost to the top and then you can go up to the top. You're like, right at a 14er. And then there's others that you start at, you know, midnight or 2 a.m. the night before because you need to get to the top. In Colorado, you know, I was trained. I, I did, I worked at a summer camp, a Girl Scout summer camp in college. And I think that was my first experience actually backpacking, carrying my gear and staying overnight. And my first experience, maybe going on a 14er and going on actual hiking. And so, and learning to live at altitude, which means you're above, um, uh, you're at a certain altitude. So you're, so it's really, when you live at altitude, you get really lightheaded. And so it takes a while to acclimate. And so I was living at altitude and I was running around the mountains with the Girl Scouts. And, um, and so then did my first backpacking trip. Uh, but I wasn't the leader, you know, there's like a real person who was leading the, the girls, the Scouts. And so from there, I started doing 14ers. And, and like I said, some are really easy, you just drive to the top. And then you get out and you walk 100 feet. It's still hard if you're not used to altitude, though. I remember when we took my mom and she was like, whoo, because the altitude is pretty intense. But then like, other, it, does it do something to your head or your your body feels like? So the oxygen is really thin and you can pass out or get lightheaded or get really nauseous. No. Um, and it can be like kind of life threatening, too. So you have to yeah. be really careful. Um, yeah. It's important to drink a lot of water when you're at altitude. Okay. Uh, so, oh, so Colorado, when you're trained to do outdoor gear, outdoor things in Colorado, you're always watching the weather because the storms move in super fast, like so, 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 so fast. And uh, so usually you'll start before sunrise, even if you're just going on, you know, a short but high altitude hike, mm -hmm. because you need to have a lot of time to hit the summit, the peak of the mountain before a storm comes in. And if you see a storm, you have to get down because if you can see it, it's coming and you got to get out of there. So sometimes when you do a 14 or you start the night before at midnight or 2 a.m., which is not fun. I guess that's even that's really hard. But so um, are you walking? You're you're walking at 2 a.m. Like so. So it's so it's like, OK, so it's like 1.30 a.m. You're like, oh, I'm getting dressed to now go walk at 2 a.m. No, nah, you're probably like driving two or three hours to get to the trailhead so that oh, so you're can... already up. Yeah. Okay. So you're okay. Already up. okay. Okay. Or some people will camp the night um, at the trailhead the night before. So then I started. Then I started doing these 14ers and those were just hikes. So they can take, you know, eight to 10 hours, maybe. Um, I mean, it really depends on on the how difficult it is, and and you know if you start at the bottom or if you drove to the top. Um, and a lot of the 14ers are not accessible by car, so you do have to hike hike up them. And that's just you're carrying your snacks and lots and lots of water and sunscreen and layers. Um, and then so I did a lot of hiking, and then after Colorado, so after college I moved to Latin America for three years, and then I came back and I was in Colorado for nine months. And then I moved to California for grad school. And um, my really good friend, Elizabeth, she's from Colorado and we're very, very close. It's a little bit of a ridiculous story how we know each other. Um, but she, so when I turned 30, I said, hey, can you teach me how to backpack? And she said, well, I think you already know how to backpack, but okay. And um, I didn't know so how wait, to backpack, yeah. So wait, is there, there's backpacking and there's hiking? Yeah. Or, so okay. hiking, you have a small backpack, probably a day pack with your water, your snacks, some first aid supplies, layers, um, you know, maybe some like a flask or a beer or something, you know, whatever, depending on your style right. and backpacking, you have everything that you need. So you have your, you have your backpack, a large backpack, like my backpacking backpack is 50, 55 liters. And I usually carry about 30 to 40 pounds. Um, and it has my sleeping bag, my tent, my sleeping pad, my cooking gear, um, a lot of water, hiking, trekking poles, layers, sunscreen, first aid kit, a lot of food, a bear bin, which is a plastic tub where I put all my food and the bears um, can't get into it. What there's there's one documented bear somewhere in Yosemite. So yeah, and you, you gotta put your food away if you're to if there are bears. So mm -hmm. some people put their food in bags and then throw it up in a tree. 
Oh. I'm really bad at that. And I, I don't really think it's super effective since bears can climb trees. Uh, <laughs> I like to take the bear bin because by the time I've hiked all day and I've set up camp, I'm just too tired to remember to put everything into a bag and go find a tree. Like what if there isn't a tree? So yeah, backpacking is where you carry everything that you need on your back. Um, and you, you know, you learn to not need a lot of stuff. So so is it stuff you've accumulated over time? Because, okay, so for me, because I have a tendency to overdo everything, everything I do is to the max. So I can just push myself, I'm going to backpack. And I go out and spend $2,000 on stuff that is not needed. And then I get out there and somebody's like, why do you have that? Because like, it was cute and it was blue. So, yeah. so how did you get you know how would you talk to someone that's like me that would just be ridiculous that's such a great question so I think like first of all most people no one's going to judge you for what you bring on the trail because you will be carrying whatever you bring and so if you want to bring I, I don't know you're like this feels really cute this place I'm <laughs> great you know and you'll probably make some friends too if you make them coffee so I don't think people are going to judge you, but I feel like I'm always like, are people going to judge me because I have like this or that or like, yeah, um, whatever I've brought. But I think most people are just pretty like focused and intent on whatever they're doing and, and no one's got time to judge. But what I would tell people, so, you know, one of the good things is that you can only bring what fits in your pack. So right away, that's going to be, I always start off with way too much gear, even now when I'm setting up for a, um, a trip. And so I'll pack it and I'll be like, oh, it doesn't all fit. What can I take out? Or then I'll get it all in. And I'll be like, it's too heavy. I don't want to carry all of this. So I think it's good to start with a list and then to put everything out and fold it. And so that you can see everything that you want to put in there. And then you pack your pack in and you start by saying, well, how can, does this even fit? And then thinking like, well, what can I take out? What can I take out? What can I take out? And Elizabeth and I, when we were younger, we used to try to take, um, like, we wanted to be, like, tough and hardcore. We're like, we're not fancy. We don't need these things, these nice whatever. And now we're a little bit older, and we're like, how much can we possibly bring to be comfortable? Like, what can I do to be comfortable? And yeah. so, like, I don't, I still don't bring a pillow, but I know a lot of backpackers that really like to bring a backpacking um, pillow that's inflatable with air. And I just put all of my, like, I just sleep on all of my gear. I put all my gear in my backpack and I sleep on it as a pillow. But so at this point, you know, having over a decade of experience, I'm like, how much can I bring and I'll be comfortable? But there are people who are ultra light backpackers and they're trying to take, I don't know, it's like 10 to 20 pounds for overnight backpacking. Oh no, and I just can't think, do it. there's no way. Like there's no way. That I mean, that does not sound comfortable at all um yeah. yeah airline restrictions bother me I'm like why are you making me only carry three bags do you know what kind of, my <gasps> shoes I have their own bag and then <laughs> and then I may have <laughs> so yeah but, okay, so if someone is starting out and they want to be um kind of conservative would you say maybe go to secondhand shops to kind of look for stuff or great question so it is really expensive to start out and I think that's why a lot of people don't go into backpacking because you need to you just need a lot of startup gear and so some of the best things you can do are borrow borrow a lot of gear mm -hmm. so um and if you're going backpacking for the first time you probably don't want to solo your first time i do a lot of solo backpacking just me and now i have my dog so me and my dog um but i say you know go with people who know how to do it they'll have extra gear because you just you always have extra gear once you get into it um, so you can borrow, you can go to used gear sa sales, um, REI, I love REI, I'm an, this is not like, podcast is not sponsored by REI, but I'm an REI, <laughs> hey, I love them, I go there all the time, they're my happy place, and I'm stressed no, at work, I just, people need the names, they need the names, because they may never have heard of REI, so it's a sports store, and it has, it pretty much has everything, and they have great sales, yeah, they yeah. do, and they have a lot, so if you're a member, you're a lifetime member, I think the membership now is $30. You pay it once your whole life. Uh, and you get dividends. So you start to make money back when you buy gear at REI. But they have a lot of great sales where they'll have used gear, gear excuse me, used gear on sale. They'd have garage sale gear. 
people sell their gear back and so they'll have it that way they have a lot of sales they'll do discounts um and so they have they have a really they have a lot of great ways where you can buy used gear and they also they used to have a rental program but i think the gear rental program is going they're ending it or they have ended it and they're going to try to do something else i was just reading on their website um but they also have a really great return policy so if you try something like let's say you get a sleeping bag and you're not warm enough you're too warm you can return it for a full refund with up to a year and so it's really nice way to um, make sure that you're buying the right gear for you and so I took my friend backpacking and she got a backpack that was too small so she went back to get a larger backpack for example so they have some really good options and then I'm sure on marketplace you can buy used gear but borrow when if I'm gonna lead a trip I'll go to Facebook and see if people can loan me gear and and then uh, but you can borrow gear to see what works well and then REI or other stores um, but have a lot of used sales so used gear is the best gear okay so can we get to Guatemala and your name indigo yeah how did how did you get there did you you just go to Guatemala like how, I always because I grew up military so I always think did the government drop you off there because you know how else do you get to other countries without the government so uh <laughs> no the government that, that no they were like okay enjoy so after, after college I majored in environmental studies at Lewis and Clark College and then I wanted to do some nonprofit work and so I went to Guatemala on a temporary project. I was supposed to be there for um, like a six month project. I think I was in Guatemala for about eight or nine months. And first I did, um, I, I'd been studying Spanish since I was in sixth grade. And then in Guatemala, I did a month of language classes in Xela, which is its second largest city. And then I moved to this little town on Lake Atilan, um, the town's called San Lucas de Toliman on Lake Atilan. Mm -hmm. And that's in the highlands of Guatemala. And I was working with the reforestation program. So um, basically my day-to-day -day consisted of filling little bags with dirt. Um, I did that all day, every day, but then sometimes we'd have groups, tour groups. And so I talked to the tour groups from the States or from, <laughs> Puerto Rico and, um, and they're speaking in Spanish. They're speaking in Spanish. Well, Puerto Ricans, they're bilingual, but yeah, most people they're speaking in English. And so I would translate for them. Everybody I worked with was Guatemalan. So they all spoke Spanish. Um, some other volunteers were also from the States. So they spoke English. I so took I lived it for 13 years. You 13. Did? Yeah. Donde esta That's all I got in Quanta Cuesta. How much? That is well, so sad. So my goal, so I'm like, that is, amazing that you get to use it and you got to use it in your everyday life that is so beautiful that is amazing like we could do this interview in spanish if you want mm, don't uh, ask el baño where's <laughs> the bath like where's the bathroom like, <laughs> like, um and then i moved to mexico where i was for almost two years working with an environmental and human rights organization oh but my name so when i moved to guatemala um my dad drove me and a friend from Mexico to Ciudad Juarez on the Mexico-El Paso border. And he was supposed to just leave us there so we would take a cab and to the bus station and then take a bus to Guatemala, which takes about two days. Um, but once we got there, he was like, nah, I'm driving you <laughs> to the bus station. It was night. He's like, I'm not leaving you here. And he drives this giant truck with like full light racks. Um, some questionable things on the, I mean, like silhouettes of women on the mud flaps. That's my dad. Uh, so, and he's a firefighter, so he has a badge. And it was very confusing when we crossed the border. This, um, you didn't need a passport to go to Mexico. This was, you know, back in the day. And so he drove us to the bus station. And then uh, on the bus, this man sat next to me uh, for like a day. And, and he would just be like, he so my my name my birth name is Jamie and he would say Jamie 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 the like whole ride to Guatemala or for a day and then he got off somewhere and I was like oh my god it's so annoying and then in Guatemala my host sister she couldn't remember my name when I introduced myself and so she said 
Sami? Sami, is that your name? And I was like, yeah, sure. It'll be Sami because I had this bad association with Yami, this like strange <laughs> man just not leaving me alone. So in Guatemala, everyone who met me in Guatemala knows me as Sami, which is pretty great because I like, you know, there's a handful of 30 people in the world who know me as Sami. <laughs> Um, but then I had this really great friend from Mexico named Patas, and every time he saw me, he would say, Sami Sosa, which is pretty cool, but like yeah, kind of got a too. little, yeah. got a little like, oh, every time. And so <laughs> when I went, when I moved to Mexico, I was at a party and I said, you know, I just really like the name Indigo. And, uh, so then they're like, well, that's your name then. That'll, and in Mexico, everyone has at least like two names, your birth name and a nickname, but normally your nickname is the name that is given to you against your will. So my friend Patas, Patas means pause, and he was called pause because he had really big hands and feet, Um, you know, and then like another friend was named Uvas, which means grapes, because in fourth grade, he dyed his hair purple, and so and so you're um, never you can never let this go. It's just that is what you are. Yeah, you're like this, like this thing I did in second grade is now my nickname. (laughs) Like I'm 72 years old and everyone still calls me whatever. <laughs> so I have some other names, but uh, I went by Indigo in Mexico or Indigo. And I th- and then I just kept it when I moved back because I didn't want to leave Mexico. I really wanted to stay there forever, but it was just, you know, like it was time, you know, mm-hmm. I just knew I, I knew it was time when I needed to leave. And so, so I kept the name and, and there you have it. That's why my name is Indigo. Awesome. That's a wonderful journey from from Colorado to now Virginia. Yeah. And um, the goal now is to open up backpacking to um, a different community, another community. Um, and yeah. so what's what's your focus there? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you for asking. I'm really excited about this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at Northern Virginia Community College, we have DEI Innovation Grants, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. And they are these grants up to $7,000 to do something innovative that is um, all about equity and and diversity and inclusion. And I want, so I wrote a grant um, and then I realized $7,000 will not be enough for this project that I dreamed up. But I really wanna take students who have been historically denied access to wild spaces, backpacking and this is a pilot project. So um, my friend Elizabeth, who taught me to backpack, she's now a professor, um, a faculty member at University of Tennessee. She's an immunologist and incredible. And so we want to co-lead a trip of women, trans, and non-binary students from Northern Virginia Community College on their first backpacking trip. So we want to teach them how to backpack and provide all the gear, all the food, everything that they need. And we'll give preference to BIPOC students, so Black, Indigenous, students of color, women, trans, non-binary. And then hopefully there, this becomes the pilot for a larger program. You know, yeah. I'd really like to take students once a semester oh. and, uh, you know, and, and open it up to all students, you know, if there were enough interest. So then maybe do like multiple trips a semester. I don't know. I, I'll be like, let's go every weekend. You know, I'm, I'm down. It's, it's yeah. just... I mean, it's something connecting with nature when you never had a chance to. I mean, it it is it is something. Um, I started trying to grow green onions, right? Nice. I know this is nothing as big as you're doing, but I'm going to give a great example. But I try to I'm trying to grow green onions, and I'm looking at this onion, and I think it's dumb. But if it didn't go through Safeway and it doesn't have that barcode, how do I know it's done? So you know, me connecting with the food that I'm growing myself, you know, you connecting with the earth or you know, walking the earth and seeing how it is in its natural form, it is a big step for people that yeah. never had that. And so I that's amazing that you are trying to open open it up to them. So and I just, you learn so much about yourself. I took a former student who's a good friend of mine, Aida Campos, on a backpacking trip, a couple backpacking trips and so she didn't know and literally nothing at all. She did not know anything about backpacking, barely hiked. Um, and so it was incredible to go, to watch her go from knowing nothing. And then two days later, she knew how to backpack. You know, she probably didn't want to go out by herself, but she she knew she could trust herself. She could rely on her instincts. She had all this confidence. She knew how to set up a tent, how to cook her own food. 
um, how to, you know, go from everything that you want to bring to just the, the things that you need. And it, uh, it was really uh, a privilege to want to be a part of that journey for her and then to take her out again and again. And um, she wrote a really cool reflection on the experience of, of backpacking and she, her family's from El Salvador. And so her connection to the land is really important, but also very contested because she comes from a country that's gone through years of the civil war. And so that, you know, displacement from the land and, um, you know, where spaces are maybe wouldn't be safe. And then I think being a woman, we're always taught to, you know, watch our back all the time, just not even backpacking, just like leaving your house or. Um, and so I think showing people the confidence and the ability they have inside themselves, they don't even know is there is tremendous. And I think I learned how to backpack when I was 30, never being an athlete. And so I learned all these things that my body could do and my brain could do. And I had no idea. And it was just the most empowering experience. And I think the opportunity to take my students out there would, would be the, the most incredible thing I could do um, with this one wildlife, as Mary Oliver asks us. So well, you seem so passionate about it. I just, um, it just looks like, um, I mean, even even while you're speaking on it, it just looks like this is something you just feel really strongly about. And that's going to speak to them. You know, they're going to be able to feel that experience as well, you know, because you you feel it so deeply. Do you want to have it to where it's like a class? Are they going to um, end up writing a reflection story on it? Or like, what will what will be the result of that? Um, so it won't be a class this first year because I'm not accredited to teach physical education, but now I'm like, okay, what do I need to do to be accredited? And I could, it could be a, yeah. but, um, they, I'm hoping, so I hope to take them to Monongahela Forest, which is in West Virginia. So Dolly Sods is a part, Dolly Sods Wilderness is a part of the Monongahela Forest. And it's a great space for beginning backpackers or, you know, people who have backpacked for years. It's just an incredible wild, wild land. And a nearby town, Thomas, West Virginia, has some really incredible artists and um, businesses. And so I'm hoping that the students can write about their experience and we can do a partnership with this publication out of Thomas, West Virginia called Mountain Mush. And um, so I think like if students wanted to write poetry, it would be really ideal, or if they want to write some reflections. And then I also have this ongoing uh, partnership with Cultural Daily, edited by Chuan Choi, this incredible poet and writer and publisher and human. And so I think that there's an opportunity to do a partnership there where students can reflect on uh, in writing. So either nonfiction or poetry or fiction, probably nonfiction for Cultural Daily about their experience backpacking. And so not only will they get this great experience, they can also get a publication credit to their name to add to their CV or resume. Um, so yes, writing will be a key opportunity for students here. And then eventually, hopefully we can make it into some sort of class perhaps, but for now it's, it's just like a really stellar weekend experience for everybody. Yeah. You talked a little bit about your friend gaining that um, confidence and, you know, in themselves. And um, what I found with women is ingrained in us to have a partner in everything. And I, I, I thought, like, how did this happen? Because my background is science. So every time every time my daughter does something, I look at it kind of scientifically. And I never let her go anywhere without someone with her. So to the bathroom, do you have someone to walk with you to the bathroom, you know? you know, when you go down the hall, is there a friend with you to walk down the hall? So it's like ingrained with us to always have someone with us. Completely freaks me out that you're saying you're camping by yourself without your partner holding your hand. Who's walking with you to the bathroom? Like, how are you, how are you doing that by yourself? That is amazing. I don't know, but explain a little bit about how you got there. Yeah, well, um, you know, like I just, I'm really independent and I just, you can't always rely on someone who wants to go backpacking with you or who has the time or is off when you're off. And so I just started, after Elizabeth taught me how to backpack, I just started going 
by myself. So I went, did a trip, um, my first solo trip in San Francisco. Um, in I cannot remember what state park I was at, but some state park. And I just like hauled all my gear up and did a few nights um, soloing there. It was, I was so close to the city. Like I could see the city. I could hear fire trucks, but I had done this like big hike to get to the spot. So that was kind of an odd place to, to do this, my first solo. And then, um, well, what are you, what do you have on you for, for you to feel safe? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I used to solo without my dog, but now I have a dog and she's, um, a husky cattle dog mix. She's 70 pounds and she can oh. hear really well. So she alerts me, but I always have a knife or two stashed away. Um, a lot of solo backpackers, women will have mace with them. Um, if I, you know, when I'm camping and I'm not backpacking, I, I'll have my, my emergent, my key fob so I can set off my panic button. Um, but, you know, I was just talking to one of my friends at the dog park the other day and she said, I can't believe you go on hikes alone because I'm always aware of like what could happen to me. And, uh, so what I told her, I don't know if this is podcast appropriate, but I was like, I have as good a chance of being raped and murdered, just walking mm-hmm. home or walking to my car or being, I'm a professor, like teaching, you know, there's a lot of mass shootings. I was like, I have, so I could be murdered or raped doing anything. And I'm not going to let that stop me from going into wild spaces where I think statistically I'm less likely, um, especially for people who are, uh, there for crimes of convenience. I think my dog's a little layer of protection, not a huge layer of protection, but, and then in terms of wild animals, I'm, I'm just like, well, you know, if this is my time to die because a bear attacks me, then, oh, right. And this is my time. I just try to make my peace with it. I don't know. It's not like great advice. I should probably have a better answer, but. No, no, it is. It is a good answer. I mean, like, um, I love going to the ocean. You know, I can't complain about the sharks if I'm in their house. So I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm getting into when I go there. Um, But I think it is good to hear that you have taken control of, you know, that that space that is very scary for a lot of people like elevators. Like if there's one guy on the elevator, I will not get on the elevator, even though there's cameras everywhere. He's going to have to get off the elevator eventually. You know, I won't I still won't get on. So um So it is good that you have taken, you know, control of that and other people will be able to hear that. And that's, I think that's amazing. So it's a good answer. It's a great answer. And I guess while we're talking about safety protocol, I do have some safety protocols. So Mm -hmm. I always tell, um, like, usually it's my, it's Elizabeth, even though she lives in Tennessee, she, I'm like, she always tell her where I'm going, what my route is, what my anticipated timing is. And um, usually I tell my mom as well and so and then I'm just like if something happens call Elizabeth because she knows like the protocol and and she'll know to check the weather like maybe I'm delayed because there was a freak weather incident or um and so so I always tell people where I'm going um my itinerary and then and when I plan to come back and so those things help with the safety protocol um and you can also get some like there's a little Garmin um has a so I forgot what it's called but there's a there's it's basically like a little satellite walkie-talkie that you can clip to your gear and it will do it can alert authorities if there's something or they can even do like an emergency evacuation and evac flight so people who hike the AT or the Pacific Crest Trail they usually have one of those um so I think it's like ten thousand dollars if you need an evac but so there are additional things that people can do, but always, always, always let people know where you're going, yeah. know your itinerary, always check the weather. Um, and then if you're doing something solo, just like always have a backup plan and extra water and food. So there's uh, a lot of safety protocols just in general that I think I forget to talk about because they're just ingrained in me. Um, but so those are some of the things I do as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is good. I, um, I, I started running um, to to kind of help me, um, you know, get back in shape and everything. And then I just liked the way um, the solo aspect of it. Yeah. But I wasn't telling people where I was going and I fell in the woods. So, yeah, that was like I looked around, looked up and I said, you know what? 
I'm going to just start letting people know. So it is a good thing. Um, so sometimes I'll send like a link because um, I don't know how long I'll be gone. So I'll give them, you know, I'm sharing my, uh, you know, my location for like an hour or whatever. So, so that is good. Yeah, yeah, that is good. Do you have, like, I have a Garmin Forerunner watch. Do you have that? Because it has some cool, like, emergency stuff that you can do if you need it. Oh, no, I need to look that up. Yeah, because I was going in trails and, yeah, so that is awesome. Yeah. That's good. So um, can you tell me a little bit about your creative writing? So uh, what has been some highlights? I know you've gotten a couple of things published. I saw that. That's pretty amazing. Is there something that, that you're, like, completely proud of? Um. Yeah. So I have an MFA in creative writing and uh, I started as a novelist, but I have yet to finish a novel because it's really hard to write. It's like a long time. You need time and, you know, you don't just don't have any. So I became a poet. Uh, it's a really great feeling to finish a product. It's like I can finish a poem and it's just as amazing. <laughs> and I started writing performance poetry when I was working with some high school students in Oakland, California at this uh, tutoring center called Making Waves. And I, I remember the first time I read them a poem and it, I was like, it's a beautifully put together poem. It like the craft is so strong. And I read it and they were trying so hard to be polite, but they could not care less. They were like, this is boring. And they didn't say that, but but I was like, this is not, this is not hitting the mark. And so I changed. And I started becoming a, like a performance poet and because of these students. And, and then I moved to Harrisonburg, Virginia, and um, told somebody I was a poet kind of jokingly. And he took me seriously. Um, Paul Summers, who's the owner of the Golden Pony, was like, great, we need more poets around here. And then he started inviting me to readings. And then I just kept writing new stuff for all these readings. And now I'm a poet. And so through that, when I moved to Northern Virginia, I met some local poets like Nicole Tong. She's a former poet laureate of Fairfax. Now she lives in Richmond. And Rachel Kuntz, who is a nonfiction writer and the co-founder of the Inner Loop, which is this um, local organization, the Inner Loop, you know, the Beltway in Northern Virginia mm-hmm. that gathers local writers of all genres. And so through the Inner Loop, I was able to write and publish uh, a piece of flash fiction called the Bucharest Tradition. And that's, um, sh- it's fiction, it's short fiction, it's under 500 words. Mm-hmm. And it won a prize uh, for the District Frey magazine and was published. And it just felt really great to have something, you know, that won a prize and was published. And um, and then the Interloop sponsored me as a writer in residence not this past summer, but the summer before that at the Popolehi Woodlawn House. And so now I'm working on a book length poem about my family's um, complicated history, which kind of ties into the myth of whiteness in America. And so it's interrogating and examining that. It's a little, it's a little intense, but um, it's pretty feels really important. I'm I'm a white writer and I think it's really important to uh, examine how white supremacy has shaped my life and that my family's story that it tells itself and how that maps onto some of the stories that parts of America tells itself and some of the conflicts and tensions that we are currently experiencing. Um, and so it's kind of like an accounting and a reclam not a reclamation, but an interrogation okay. of some of some hard things. Right. So asking the hard questions and then making sure you're absolutely answering them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. And it has been like um like do you think everything's kind of led up to this and this is like is it a long time coming or did you just recently start working on it or I think it's a long time coming. Okay. A long time coming. Yeah. So um, I could tell you a little bit about it if you want. Yes, please. If you have time. That would be Um, great. Yeah. So my my family, I think this is true of a lot of white families, perhaps, um, has 
has consistently told itself two things. And this is my, my maternal side of the family. My paternal side, um, we're like, I think I'm third generation American on that side. But on my mom's side, we like trace our, our ancestry back to the 1700s. And, um, and so we've always said, you know, we were too poor to have ever enslaved people. And we're related, we're descended from a Native American woman. And so, and that's just like was the family line. And then the third thing that is not necessarily true of all white people in the US, but is in my family, is that I'm a, a direct descendant of Stonewall Jackson's youngest, younger sister. So I was always like, how can we trace our lineage proudly back to the Confederacy and yet also say we had no part in slavery? Like something feels weird there. And then, um, then like this Native American thing. I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like, this doesn't really track with me. I'm like, I don't know. And so I think like growing up, I'd never really thought about it. Cause it just, I was like, Oh, whatever. Um, you know, I was like, what is life? I'm, I'm 10. I don't know. So, um, but then as I got older and I started to learn about, you know, like learning about the civil war and then moving to Virginia, like, you know, if you move to Virginia, you can't go yeah. to without like being in some sort of site historical site yeah and so and so really like thinking about what this means and um I wanted to I was trying to like get close to my ancestors or something and so I organized a cemetery crawl which is where we go back to visit the cemeteries I mean I made that up that's I don't think people call it that but I was like tough crawl <laughs> over cemeteries and so my grandma's cousins and sisters they they put it together and we drove out to Floyd County and um, Floyd West Virginia or Floyd Virginia and southwestern Virginia and we were going to all the family homesteads and we went to the place that we've always been told was called the Hilton Farm it's actually the Hilton Plantation and then when we were in the graveyard there's a separate space for the enslaved people um with little confederate flags which you know uh, i found really alarming and problematic and, and it's like, still standing it's still yeah. standing wow. yeah yeah and there's like a you know there's a little a, um, a glossary i mean there's a list of like the people who are buried there and so and and i looked at my i remember like looking at my mom and looking at my grandma and i was like i was so i was like you lied to me yeah. But um, the Native American lady, like, <laughs> like you said, but they didn't know either. Like they also, they, it was, it was the first time that they had learned this part of the history. So I guess like no one, people were just content with the family narrative, like too poor for this, definitely connected to this. Um, and so I was like, this, I was like, this is like really problematic and uncomfortable. And also like, I don't think you have to be able to show that your family participated in this peculiar institution, this like incredibly like traumatizing, wrong, devastating phenomenon that continues to have like real big problems today. I don't think you have to be able to tie your family to that if you're a white person to need to like account for. Yeah white privilege so but in, in this case I was like this is like even you know this is I was like I feel ashamed I feel guilty um I feel like kind of astonished I feel angry and so so then like out of that going through your head yeah. yeah and then around this time it was when like Elizabeth Warren was claiming Native American ancestry which I think like she does she has it. like it's part of her but she did it in, in a like a really you know, not great public arena, the way that it, she was, where she claimed her indigeneity. And, um, and so, so I was like, at that time, and then you like, Trump was running for president, and, and then became president. And so like, in that moment, I was like, I'm gonna have a mental breakdown. Like, I, like, I, don't, I can't change the past, but I have to write about how my family, like, frames the past, in terms of how we exist. And so I was just like, what my family is going through seems to be like what a lot of white families are going through and so I was like I need to write this to figure out like how do we go forward because you can't just be like well it was 200 years ago it's not really my fault like that's not that's not going to lead to healing and I don't think it's going to lead to um you know I think that white people need to account for a lot of things and so 
no one's saying like, oh, you're 40, like you were definitely in, like responsible for this thing. But it's like, but what you choose to do with what you know now is your responsibility. And so I think like this book, this book length poem is me trying to work through all of those emotions and feelings. Um, and then also like process what my family has told itself and then use that as a metaphor for understanding whiteness in America as like maybe a way for for people to do something better. I don't know. Did I explain that in any way no, that makes no, sense? It's amazing. No, I'm just thinking I um I can just see you, you know, kind of standing there and all these things are running through your head and you're thinking, you know, what's the best way for me to try to get this all down and in writing? I mean, that that is a I can see that being something very heavy and then trying to figure out what to do with that. So I, that's amazing that you thought of writing, which is your passion. So yeah. also that you're bringing that together. That's, a, that's pretty amazing. And it's, you know, it's heavy stuff. Like nobody knows how to have a good conversation about it. Um, yeah. We are still all, you know, uh, the black community is still trying to have conversations about it as well. And, you know, um, I tell the story of <clears throat> my daughter when I was learning how to do her hair, I thought that my ancestors would come down from the heavens and teach me how to braid. That did not happen. It is a it is a technique in an art form and I will continue to pay for it because I do not know what I'm doing. So anyways, so I say to her, why is your hair so bad? And she says, what did my hair do? So I had to learn how to not say these words, you know, these, these hurtful words. So like everyone's still trying to learn how to have those conversations. So, um, so thank you. Thank you for even opening the door to that, that kind of conversation. I think that's pretty amazing. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And I think you're exactly right. Like we don't know how to have this conversation and that's, I mean, it's time, you know, it's been time. And so hopefully we can figure it out as a country but yeah yeah your, your base is perfect we don't know how to have that conversation yeah so every every little bit helps and i think getting people to learn how to talk to themselves which is also part of this my um podcast because um i think we we had these lists for ourselves that we were doing things we were in the midst of trying or trying to figure out then the pandemic hit and everybody's just like forget it i'm done you know, I'm on a whole new things, but there was something that was near and dear to you that you want to get back to uh, loving again. And I want to show how people are still living their lives, you know, connecting with the things that they love. Um, just one more thing um, before we head out. But while you're backpacking, um, do you feel like you're connecting with yourself? And is that something you want to show this uh, the community the, uh, that you're trying to get um, the sponsorship for? Uh, connecting with yourself, connecting with nature, is that something you're finding? Is that what you want to bring to the, the kids? Yeah, I think when I, you know, I realized that if I don't get out and walk in the woods a certain amount every week, I am so unbalanced and I lack grounding. And I also notice like when I'm struggling with something, like right now I'm going through a difficult thing with my family. And so I'm keep going to the woods and and I find that just having that being out in the woods walking I have time everything goes away like your phone doesn't work I can't do all the things on my to-do list all I have is like the next step in front of me like thinking about how much water do I have where am I getting water like when's it time to eat and then just walking and so I have a lot of time to process and it feels like healing. So it feels like I'm taking that time to heal myself from the big things. And then just like the small things that take our energy every week. And I just really want my students to be able to have that experience and to realize that's available to them. That And that it's, it's their right. These are public lands that are also that belong to them. And so and that sense of peace belongs to them. And, um, and we all deserve healing and we all deserve rest. And so, yeah, like walking 10 miles doesn't sound restful, but it is this like, rest it does not, it does not sound <laughs> restful. I would like to just say that, but that's not what we're here to do. So but yes. in, a, in a way your spirit gets to rest. Okay. And so yeah. that healing, that rest, you know, I follow the nap ministry on Instagram and she is just incredible. And she's like, 
you need to rest, you need to rest and like, um, and you know, kind of an anti-capitalist critique as well. And so I think um, just being out in the woods is that healing and that rest and that peace. And so I really want, I want everyone to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have found how pivotal it is in my own self-care in my own space. So, so when are you going to come? Let's go backpacking. Let's take your daughter and go. We can do something little. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That sounds that. No, I I do want it. And that was one of the reasons why I was so excited when my neighbor suggested you to come on the podcast. Cause that is something I wanted to get into. I have a couple other females that live in my um, neighborhood that want to get into it. So we would love that. And um, anyone that's calling in that wants to learn more, um, are you open to people contacting you and just asking questions or? um, Yeah, I'm happy to answer questions um, and give people advice or share my packing list, uh, you know, get people together, take, go go on a hike or do a little semi-coordinated trip. That would be really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm getting the ladies together and we're going to go on a backpacking, which we learned today. There's a difference between backpacking and hiking. So thank you so much, Indigo, for sharing that. And your passion is just extraordinary. I am just so thankful to be part of um, this journey and to help get that information out. Um, look for uh, her information. Do you want to go ahead and do uh, the GoFundMe real quick? And Yeah. Okay. So I... <laughs> Started a GoFundMe. I do have a grant in um, the innovation grant, and then have been talking to REI about collaboration. But I'm trying to raise funds to take students out, and my goal on the GoFundMe right now is ten thousand. I think I need. I did a budget. I need about twenty thousand dollars to set up a gear closet so that we can buy all the gear we need and just take keep taking people. Um, so I do have a GoFundMe, and all of that will be used to take students out backpacking. Um, and I think I sent you the link and then I have my Instagram, which you have the link for that too. So if anyone, $5, $500, anything will just be incredible to support the students. And I'm so thankful for this opportunity. It has been a joy to talk to you. Thank you for your incredible questions and for making this podcast so that people can get back to their to-do list. Like I think of it as like our heart chores, kind of like the things our heart is calling us to do. And thank you for making the space. And um, thank you for creating a space for me to talk about this project. And because of you, I started the GoFundMe and I think we already have $500 and I just started it today. That's so awesome. It's going to be, the links are going to be in um, the bio and your information is going to be in there. So please, everybody listen to this story. It's amazing. You are a beautiful person, a beautiful human. Thank you so much for joining me. And we look forward to hearing from you again, especially after I talk about my hiking experience, because maybe I'll do an on-site. Anyways, thanks for joining us on Sookie's Honeydew, Sookie's Honeydew Project. And um, I look forward to doing something soon with you next week. Thank you.